Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Well, guys, we have some exciting news for you from Vortex about their brand new eyewear, their Banshee and Jackal sunglasses. Me and Andrew have had these for a few weeks now, right before the release, and we've been extremely impressed. They're awesome glasses, guys. And listen, if you're needing some new sunglasses, not only do they have the VIP warranty, but they're tough as crap, guys. Uh, Scratch-resistant eyewear, uh, it's extremely important. And also, they have safety features as well. So when you're out shooting at the range, again, these are rated glasses, so you are going to be more than protected when you're at the range. But they also look fantastic when you're out around town. So right now, Vortex has some special pricing on their website, which is vortexoptics.com for the new eyewear. But also, if you use the code SOUTHERN20, you get to save even more on this special pricing for right now at vortexoptics.com. Again, check out the new eyewear from vortexoptics.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN20 to save on their brand new eyewear. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the Eco Wild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar, May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you and we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th 
Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Today, coming at you on location from uh, the headquarters, the global headquarters of uh, Cedar Ridge Chronicles That's with right. Daniel Williams. Absolutely. What's up, man? What's up? Y'all doing all right? I'm doing real good. Welcome to the house. We just uh, we just had some uh, some turk filet, wild mm-hmm. turkey meat that y'all prepared. It was really good. Mm-hmm. Appreciate y'all serving us up some dinner. Yeah, man. But uh, this uh, this one's been a long time coming, man. So you we've we've talked about you a good bit. You're you're our taxidermist. We got a whole bunch of deer here with you right now. <laughs> yeah, piles of them. <laughs> <laughs> we got a big old pile of them. I sent my stepdad up here with his first deer yep. a couple weeks ago. Yeah, he was you, fired up. That was cool. Oh, dude, like he he came him. back. He was he was like, man, that Daniel. He's like the nicest guy ever. <laughs> <laughs> he got to be this much competition. <laughs> That'd be a nice taxidermist. <laughs> yeah, dude, that's what I'm talking about. So I love seeing somebody kill a deer though. Especially the first buck. Oh yeah, awesome. man, that, that was a special one, dude. He he, we've been hunting so hard this year, and you know he killed it, and we all got to go out there. Like my wife, we had my daughter out there, who's nine months old. Got pictures of them together, and awesome. yeah, man, my I mean, yeah, Mike Mike's been getting after it. Mm-hmm. He's been hunting hard this year. I was super happy when he got. It. But Jacob's here too, by the yeah, way. Yeah, by hey, the way. Jacob. yeah, yeah, Jacob. Yeah, for all the audio listeners, video listeners, y'all can see yeah. me. But he know. always gets introduced last. That's, that's right. right. Always just, last. Yeah. You know, last but definitely not least. Yeah. That's the most important thing to know. That's right. He's, know. Not, he's not very forgettable. The, the life of the party on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, Daniel, super excited to have you here. There, there's some stuff. Listen, I'm just going to say this at the beginning of the podcast, guys. You're going to want to tune back in this summer don't don't forget about the podcast because we're gonna have daniel back on for a oh, yeah. a conversation i think we're gonna have a absolute ton of listener success stories come from but before then, we're just teasing you with it because we're not gonna <laughs> drop it in february no we're not dropping it in february it's too good but yeah, uh too good daniel one thing i want to kind of start off with with you is can you talk a little bit about like your hunting experience we can talk a little bit about how the transition from public to private but what was that like growing private up to public private to public oh what did i say the public to private. The other way oh, around. Well, yeah, yeah. that's Andrew now. Either one. Yeah, Andrew, yeah what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. I'm on that privilege land, man. He, he, yeah, he, he, don't, he, don't, he don't know what the, uh, the public just, land is. He yeah, just wait until eight or ten landowners die. You'll go back to public. <laughs> <laughs> you'll, you'll lose them as fast as you learn them. <laughs> Subdivisions left and right. That's uh, hey, that's how it is where I hunt for sure. Yeah, but I mean, what, what's been your journey from uh, private to public and kind of like as a kid growing up deer hunting and then kind of the inspiration between from that to like getting into taxidermy too well like when i was a kid i mean like really little my dad used to take me hunting when i was like four or five years old and we had a club down in in selma alabama's on the alabama river that it was all swamps every lot of creeks coming into it and just branched out into swampland and we would usually go and sit either on the ground or in boxes and hunt edges of water you know stuff like that but growing up like my dad loved to scout so like we would go out, we'd scout and, and they, my family kind of started this club. The guy that owned it, he had like three or four clubs and decided to take another big piece of his land. It was a cotton farm and he owned a gin, the cotton gin and everything. It was like thousands, tens or 15,000 acres. And he decided to make another club and my family decided to leave one of the clubs they were in with him and start this new club. 
So when they did that, they went ahead and went on like a trophy management program and started doing like 125 doe tags a year and all this stuff in, in 1980. So like when nobody was managing, they started managing because they liked to kill trophy deer. So by the time I got to be seven, eight years old, I killed my first year when I was eight. And then by the time I was 12, I'd kill a little six point and it got to where every year I'd kill a buck. And then my dad, like he would take me scouting. That's all we did. Like when everybody else was eating lunch, we'd scout. You know, when people was watching football, we scouted. I mean, it's, we did it for fun. You know, you went out and got on three wheelers, you know, and drove around till you found a rub on the side of the road or a track. And then you just start walking that rub line and see what happened. Cause you know, there was no game cameras or cell phones or GPS or anything. You just, you looked and looked and looked. And you didn't even know what the, I mean, we had helicopters that would take a satellite uh, aerial picture. That's what you did. You hired a, a helicopter and they come out and they would take a picture of your property and send you a print. And that's where our sign out shed was a, a big three foot, four foot wide map that was taken by a man in a helicopter. How much did that cost back I then? I have no clue. <laughs> you know, but relatively speaking, I mean, it probably mm-hmm. would, wouldn't be that much because everybody did it back then. Mm-hmm. I mean, like Christie's grandparents got a picture of their house that was taken back at the same time it's in there framed in their house. Oh, that's cool. From, you know, but, but, you know, back then that's all you had to go by. So like you knew looking at the map, here's the field and here's mm-hmm. woods, but no topography, like nothing like that. And, uh, so we just scouted and scouted. So growing up, like I killed that, that deer, that big 10 point when I was 15 years old. And it was like, when I walked up, like when I saw the deer, I was like, there he is. Cause all I'd ever wanted to do is kill a trophy buck. And everybody in the club had one. And every year you'd see four or five killed. And back then we were killing 160s, you know, in, in a time where like every friend I had in school had never seen a buck. And I was watching 15 of them a day, you know, these giant fields and stuff. And it was like, we, you didn't shoot a deer unless it was a big one. People would kill spikes. I'm like, why'd you kill that deer? You know, and I'm like eight, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, there again, it's just what I grew up. That's what I was taught. So when I killed that big deer, I was like, man, they really do exist. Because in my mind, it's like something that you can't find. Mm-hmm. It's like this thing that doesn't really exist. And sometimes somebody kills one, and you it's almost like you still don't believe it, you know, especially if you're a new hunter or young. And when I killed him, I was just like, man, like from now on, like I'm going to try to find another one. But I had found, my dad had gone down a road and seen this giant rub and told me where it was at. He was hunting another buck. And he said, I saw this huge rub coming out. If you want to go down and look at it, this is where it's at. And he showed me on the map. So I rode in there. And there's a rub on a cedar. I mean, it's like that big. And across the road, there was another one. So I just went one way and run out of sign in about 100 yards. So I went back the other way and found 20 more rubs. One of them was on a sweet gum tree that had a knot in it that was as big as a basketball, and it was skint. And I found about four scrapes about that big around. Had my tree lounge. You know, back then that was our mobile hunting. You took your tree lounge in and out every time you hunted. Like we'd carry that thing in. It was like 30 pounds. And, uh, went in there, put it in a tree, cut a hundred limbs out of it to climb it, and then hunted it that afternoon. Didn't see anything. It was January, I think the 30th. And I went in there the next day. It was the, then it was the last day of deer mm-hmm. season. And uh, I went in, I think it was, I think, let's say, well, flax not on anymore. I think I killed on the 31st. But I went in there the next morning at 6.30 in the morning, a doe come running down that scrape line, and he was behind her. And I shot him and dropped him in his tracks. And it was like, now I know how to kill big bucks. Like I just find dr- giant scrapes and I go, you know, <laughs> and, and then I, you know, for years it was like, this is not working. <laughs> but, but that's what like back then is kind of the same way it is now. People went to their favorite box and, you know, since it was all family, we all knew each other. You didn't hunt other people's spot. Like I had my spot. It was stand number seven. 
And every year I'd kill a buck off stand number seven. You know, and everybody had their own place that they liked. Classic hunting club set. Absolutely. You know, you just had your spot. You're comfortable with it. You knew where you wanted to park. You were safe there. It's like everything will go just right. I'm taking my sandwiches and I'm getting in my box. And by the way, when he says box, everybody out there, he means like a shooting house. Yeah, shooting house. Or a blind yeah. or whatever. Yeah, back in the day, it was a box. Yeah. You know, or a wooden ladder. Is a ladder or a box. <laughs> now, real, real quick, because we're going to talk, there's a lot of stuff I want to touch on with you in like the culture, kind of like hunting back then and like what you learned from some of these, again, old older guys, these old timers and kind of like their mindset. Because you're talking about like trophy hunting in the 80s when mm-hmm. like that was not a thing. Right. Like my uncles, they were running dogs in the 80s. It was just like shoot whatever you can, you know, just trying to find right. some deer. Uh, but by the way, your first deer you ever shot, you ever killed, what'd you kill it with? A 35 Marlin lever action. It was so early in the morning that I saw the fire come out of the barrel and I thought the gun had exploded. <laughs> I, I actually started screaming and told my dad that we were on fire. Like I thought the I thought like the box was gonna burn down. <laughs> like I was losing it. Oh my god. But gosh. I was like, no, 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 it's okay. But it was like like literally like I had to wait to be able to see my crosshairs to shoot the deer were already out on the field, you know, and I had to wait to, to see the crosshairs to shoot it, but it was it was awesome. <laughs> that is cool. Absolutely. I've never, we never asked people that question. I'm kind of now always curious. I bet you, I bet you can't guess what I killed my second one with. Second deer I ever killed was the six point when I was 12. I'll give you a hint. It was a 30 alt six. BAR? Good guess, though. Mm. It was a Remington 742 Woodsmaster. Oh, 742. Yeah. Oh, heck yeah. A little automatic. Yeah. Actually, is that pump or that's automatic. automatic? Yeah, automatic. Yeah. yeah. You got the pump, don't you? No, I've got both. I've got both. Yeah. That was the gun. My dad, that was the first day I ever sat by myself. I was in a covered wooden ladder stand. That was when we had upgraded and started building these stands like 20 foot, 30 foot off the ground. And we would take these wooden ladders and go up with a platform and then another ladder coming off of it to a platform and then build a box. <laughs> In the tree, like Dude. it looked just it was like a, a tree house. house. Literally, you can oh. hold like five people in one of the things. Oh, and, and uh, I, have, I'm sure those were TMA tested too. Dude, <laughs> dude, like thinking back on it, like it's insane. We used to have to go every year and take like 16 penny nails and like reinforce everything. And I mean, my dad like drew, dropped me off, you know, and I'd climb this 20 foot tall wooden thing and get up in it, you know, with a 30 alt six. That was the first day I'd ever hunted with a 30 alt six. First day I ever hunted by myself. He put me on a, in a stand. I killed that six point like 180 yards. And uh, <laughs> actually, like, it was funny because at the time we were six point or better. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't know what I'd shot. Like, like, I knew I saw what I saw. But then after you shoot, you start second guessing mm-hmm. yourself. And like, I'm like losing. I'm like, man, my dad's going to kill me. Like, I'm going to get fined and everybody's going to be mad. You know? <laughs> <laughs> we get out there to it. He came up. He's like, what did you shoot? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> you know, but. Um, there was like, you're talking about the guys in the club and stuff. A lot of the, like my granddad, all my great uncles and all those guys, they shot two seventies and 30 alt sixes and they had their favorite boxes and each one of them had, they would kill about a buck or two a year at the time. You know, you kill a buck in a doe a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a rule where you could only kill five bucks a year per membership. So whether it was kids, wives, anything, you could kill five bucks per membership. And we were killing... I think the last year we were in that club before it closed, I think we killed it. We had 125 doe tags here. We filled them every year. And uh, we killed 125 does and like 80 bucks. I think the last year we was in it. So that's about our average. How many year. acres? Uh, about probably 6,000. Mm-hmm. We had 40 members. Yeah. Um, but now back then, I mean, 20 people hunted. Mm-hmm. You know, we had one camp house. There weren't campers. Everybody came and we had two bunk rooms and a fireplace. 
you know, we didn't have a TV. There wasn't no air conditioner. <laughs> you know, you just went, you, you camped all together. You cooked together. You ate breakfast, you know, together. And it was, it was awesome, you know, because everybody was on the same page. You get up in the morning at 5 o'clock, everybody drink coffee and look at the map. You'd have 20 people standing in front of the map trying to God. figure out who's going where and what we're going to do, you know. And the stress. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you had, that makes me anxious just thinking about it. Yeah. Oh. Well, and everybody had CBs back then. Oh, yeah. You, know, you didn't have any other way of communication. So if you got stuck, I mentioned that a little bit in my book. Like, if you get stuck back then, you had to radio in a CB and hope that somebody was there with a four-wheel drive that could come get you. Because, I mean, it might be, you know, 15, 20 degrees outside, and you're 10 miles from camp in the middle of nowhere and there ain't no cell phone. Ain't, mm-hmm. you know, there ain't no way to contact anybody. So like, you know, not to mention the fact you're in a eighties model Datsun, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so like it, it was, it was different, but at the time, you know, I was a kid, I didn't think nothing about it. Well, t- I want you, I want to talk, I want to kind of stand on the topic of like some of the older guys that, mm-hmm. that were in the yeah. club, like your dad, your granddad, uncle, stuff like that. But also you were telling me something on the drive up here that like back then, Nobody bow hunted. They small game hunted yep. during bow season. Squirrel season. So what was that like with that like, kind of culture aspect? Well, like it was it was crazy enough to where like when they first came out with some of the, the more modern compound bows, like a PSE Nova was huge back then. It was the first the, like, what year are we talking? Range. Um what would that have been? Ninety six? Maybe. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little earlier than that. But it was one of the first one cam bows that ever came out. And everybody had an overdraw that long or anything else. But at that time, the serious bow hunters were using recurves or like an old Ben Pearson bow or something, you know, and they couldn't kill a deer. I mean, they, they could, but it was almost impossible. You had horrible stands. Everybody's using amackers and lock-ons with, with nails drove in the tree. You know, you had a spike tree, and you went and got a lock-on with a chain on it and, uh, or amacker climbers, but they would kill. I mean, there was like two deer a year killed with a bow. I mean, nobody could hit them. You couldn't shoot past 15 yards or so. I mean, it was just, it was almost, it was like it was impossible. And the few people that got into those new bows, they'd bow hunt like crazy. But it was to the point where there might be three guys that would bow hunt. And everybody else in the whole club would be there with 22 rifles, squirrel hunt. You didn't use a shotgun when I was a kid. Squirrel, it was messed up your squirrel meat. Like you used a 22. If you couldn't kill them with a 22, you wasn't worth hunting. No, headshots you, only. That's it. Headshots only. Yeah. We'd actually do, uh, they had little tournaments, kind of like we do big buck contests now. We used to do squirrel tournaments with 22 rifles. And, you know, we'd put $10 a piece in it or whatever, and you had to shoot them in the head. They had to be headshot to be a point, you know, that kind of thing. So <laughs> that, that kind of stuff, armadillo hunting, that kind of stuff. But, like, what we would do is we'd go out and squirrel hunt, and you didn't walk around. We didn't have dogs. You went and you, you sat just like your deer hunting. You found where the squirrels were at, acorn trees, stuff like that, and you sat down on the ground, and you waited. And when a squirrel came, you killed it, and you didn't move. You let him lay in. A little while later, another squirrel would come, you'd shoot him, you know. And that's how we squirrel hunted. Well, if you ever saw a buck, like a six-pointer better especially, you went and told the bow hunters. That was kind of like the unwritten rule. It was like, dude, like, I just had a six-point. I'll, I'll never forget. I was probably, I don't know, 10, 12 years old. And it was middle of bow season, squirrel season. And I'm sitting there squirrel hunting. Man, I killed a big fox squirrel. It's his first fox squirrel I'd ever seen. And I killed him. And I'm like, man, this thing is awesome. You know, I'm sitting there looking at it. And the six point comes walking down through this wide open cypress swamp, like 20 yards from me broadside. And I'm like, I mean, it's like <laughs> the first rack buck like I've ever seen ever. I'm like, oh, my gosh. 
And it's like within bow range, you know, I'm sitting there watching it. No it's definitely that, within 22 range, you're saying. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> That's where I'm about to get with this. And we I'm keep like, going. Man, you know, and, and of course, you know, no camera. I can't video it or anything. It's just like crazy. So I get back to camp and I'm losing my mind. I'm like, listen, I just saw a buck. Everybody's like, where? You know, where's this buck? You know, so I'm telling them, well, all these guys, there's like three or four guys start trying to hunt this six point, you know, <laughs> and like, of course, nobody ever saw it again. I mean, we didn't know where, even where it came from or where it went. We didn't know nothing about anything. But the cool thing was is there was there was two different guys. One of the guys used a recurve every year, and he would usually kill a buck every year and was very good at finding bucks. Like he, he was probably in his 60s then. And, man, the guy was like six foot six or some real tall guy, lanky, but could shoot the fire. He'd get out every morning. You'd be waking up, like getting ready to get in the shower, and you could hear his bow, pop. He'd be back there shooting his recurve. He'd shoot it about 20 or 30 times every single morning to loosen his shoulder up and get his zero, and then he'd go get in a stand. He'd come back at lunch, he'd eat, and he'd shoot about 20 or 30 times and go get back in a stand. And he hardly ever missed. Like, he, he killed some decent deer, you know, with his recurve. And then there was another guy that was one of my dad's buddies. And uh, my dad liked bow hunting, but this other guy, like, he was one of those guys that had two or three trophy bucks that he got mounted with his bow before we even knew it was possible to kill a trophy buck with a bow. And he was started doing it more and more consistently as I got to be an early teenager and stuff. And he was one of the guys that, like my dad was maybe more passionate about hunting than maybe anybody in that club, except for this guy. He's like one of those guys. You know, he's like the Jamie McKay of Selma in 1985. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he'd never, he'd take off all, all winter. You know, he would take three months vacation and he would live there. He'd go down there, and he would hunt every single day, and he'd kill five bucks every year. He's the only person I ever knew that would that bucked out any year, and he did it every single year. And it may not be all monsters, but he would kill two that'd go on the wall every single year, and he did it until the club shut down. It got to where when I got to be probably 16, 17, when I started driving myself and going down there, he would take me with him to get deer, which was like back then, it's like an honor. I mean, you didn't have communication with other people. You didn't know other people that deer hunted, much less could just get on Facebook and be like, hey, how do you kill deer in a swamp? You know what I mean? Like, you can't just learn this kind of stuff. Like, this guy has been killing these deer for 10 years and has never spoke to anybody in the whole club. You know, you don't know where he's hunting. He won't tell anybody. You don't, you don't know nothing. Well, it got to where I spent so much time. I didn't watch football. I didn't watch any TV or anything when they – once they started getting TVs or anything else down there, like I was scouted all, I was just obsessed with looking for bucks on. I loved it. And he was that way. And we kept ending up on top of each other. And it kind of got to where when he would shoot a deer, he'd come and get me and be like, hey, I've got a big buck down over here. Will you please come help me get it? Because at the time, you know, we were, he was getting a little older, wanted a little bit of help, didn't trust anybody else to go anywhere near even where he was parked. But he didn't hunt boxes. You know, he didn't hunt ladder stands. Like he hunted his tree lounge, <laughs> you know, and he carried it in and out. He didn't want anybody to find it on a tree. So, like, we'd get in his truck, and we'd ride over there, and he'd take me up in there, man. He'd be like, now, pay attention. When we go up in here, I'm going to show you something. He's like, you've been hunting over here, you know, because I'd be telling him, I'm like, because he he'd ask at first, first few years, he'd be like, where are you at exactly on the map? And I'd show him. He'd be like, okay, I'm over here. We won't be on top of each other. We'll both go in there. If I'm here, signed out, just let me know. You can go in there, too. I'm like, all right. Well, once he got to trusting me, you know, it was like, we're just this group of, we're going to go kill some deer, you know. He started taking me, in, and he would tell me, he's like, no, we'd have like a transition line, or it'd be like two, 
really it was an SMZ on flat land coming down. It would be like a ditch, and there would be these two giant cutovers that might be 200 acres apiece. And they would come together to a pinch point in the narrowest spot in that little SMZ. There may be like an acorn tree. Well, there would be acorn trees down the entire thing. We'd be walking in. He's like, now where would you hunt right here? And I'd be like, well, I mean, I'd hunt over here. These red oaks are dropping. He's like, well, where's, where's deer feeding around them? You know, and I'd be like, well, I mean, I don't really see nothing, but I mean, you know they're going to come to acres. He's like, yeah, they're going to come to acres, but they ain't coming to these acres. You know, and we'd walk on up in there, walk up in there. And this was, he would do this while we were going to get this deer. And he just loved, like he, I don't know if he'd never had a chance to teach anybody, but you know how it is, man. Like Mm -hmm. no matter how much you don't want to tell somebody about your spot, it's like aching to get out of you. Like you (laughs) want to, you like to share. It's just fun. You know, it's part of the old style of hunting, what we used to do, it was awesome to be able to sit around the campfire and tell stories to people you trusted because mm-hmm. you wanted somebody to know, you know. Absolutely. And he just never had anybody he could tell. So, like, we, you know, we'd go up in these places, and, and he would show me when we would get to that spot. He was like, now, what's the difference here? And it wouldn't be another 100 yards, but it might be the SMZ split, and there may be, like, another cutover, and then two cutovers, and then there would be, like, this acorn tree with, like, either deer droppings or, or dirt and there would be these trails coming out of those cutovers and you'd see like a rub that big on the tree and he's like that right there is what gets them killed and i'm like that little rub and he said yep he said because this acorn tree this is where they're feeding he said i don't care how big the tree is or where it's at he said if there's a tree there that's rubbed he said a buck stood there he said and all he has to be is big enough to shoot he said and you know, like i said without game cameras that's your state mm-hmm. of mind you don't you don't get to pick what you're hunting. You find the bucks. And at the time, nobody could find five, much less two a year. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't find that many bucks. So, like, he would sit there. He, I think he killed that spot I'm, I'm talking about. He killed four or five, like, hammers right there with a bow. And after seeing that, I started trying to duplicate it. Like, he'd show me on the map what it looked like on the aerial map. And then you could start duplicating that on that aerial map. So you could just go check it. And I, then I, he just told me, he said, don't stop walking until you find where those bucks are traveling. He said, when you find where they're traveling, even if you're on a road or you see sign, start following it until you figure out where he's going and what he's doing. So anytime I'd see, I just ride roads with a four-wheeler or whatever, you know, and, and when I find a rub or a track, I'd stop no matter where it was at. He said, don't, he said, try to get the roads out of your mind. He said, these deer don't know there's roads. They don't know there's boxes and ladders. Unless there's people going to them all the time, they're going, you know, they skirt them and everything else. He said, but when you find where a deer's moving, he's just in the woods. He's out in the middle of nowhere. He don't, a road's not a road to a deer. So, you know, you'd be going down the road and find this giant track or like a rub on the side of the road. And it's like, oh man, like this is where, this is like main road or this is where everybody does this or that. And you just get off the road and start walking. And after you got back in there a little ways, it was like, Rub, rub, rubber, you'd find scrapes or whatever. And I just started setting up on them. You know, you just climb a tree. And if you found a really good spot where it's like just tore up with sign and stuff, like you knew, it's like, man, it's the spot. Well, it might be 1st of January. And I, most of our deer we killed there was the last week of January. That was like our hot, I mean, the second the year was going to end, that was when everybody killed their big deer. And you'd sit there for a month and not see anything. And then all of a sudden, after three weeks, here he'd come down a trail and I'd kill one. And it got to where I was killing, you know, deer like these in the floor over here, like little sixes and sevens and stuff like that. Like every year I'd kill two or three of them. And I started getting the hang of what to look for. And I started noticing like the bigger, the bigger the sign, the bigger the buck. And, and Mike, you know, Mike, this guy's name, he started showing me some of that stuff too. But 
uh, after, I guess after probably four or five years of hunting with him, it got to the point to where I had almost found every spot on the whole club that he hunted. You know, just by looking at the map after learning just those differences, it's just like, like the terrain coming together and stuff like that. But it was really, I'm glad I got to learn then because with the tools you're given now, you take what you already learned then and it's like, I mean, we talked about it the other night, you know, when you showed me a map, it's like, this is where the deer are. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if I was a deer, this is where I'd be. But um, it, it was also really interesting because you didn't know patterns back then either. You didn't know deer patterns or people patterns. Everybody pretty much went to the same trees. So on private land in a hunting club, and you know everybody in there, you already know exactly where they're sitting. And over a period of time, I learned that the deer just went in between everybody. It's like they never did leave. They were just always just going in between everybody and sk- skirting them. So it was pretty. It was pretty awesome. Yeah, the whole old timer like woodsmanship aspect is like, you know, fascinating because you're talking about like when you're talking about hunting with Mike, this guy you're talking about who's in his probably mid to late sixties. Was this like in the nineties? He was younger than that. He was probably in his at the time. He was probably in his mid forties. Okay, mm-hmm. this was back in the back in the nineties, mm-hmm. early to early to mid nineties. So you know, finding somebody like that who's you know got that experience before a day and age like we have now with technology, cell cameras, Onyx, you know, digital maps, just so many other things that we have that we can kind of almost not necessarily speed up the process, but it's almost like you rely so much on the technology you like lack on the woodsmanship. Well, a lot of what I've noticed, and I mean, I'm, I'm only 43, but I grew up in that generation. So like what I'm noticing nowadays that's frustrating to people like me is that a lot of times the, the kids or even the adults that are new at it get so discouraged because of the failure or just lack of success by what they know to be true. And sometimes what they know to be true is not necessarily true or consistent. You know, so when, you, when you're told this is what you do or you learn this is what you do and then you go apply that and get zero back, then you're constantly thinking you're doing something wrong and you don't understand. Where I was taught this is impossible, but if you find this, you might see one one day. And then when you did, it's like, okay, I'll try that again for a year. And it Man, might take you a, a year point. to kill one deer. Oh, that's a good point. You know, and, and that that's why it's like it's like when I was talking to you the other day about putting them cameras up. I'm like, did you put a camera here? You're like, no, we went and checked this spot. I'm like, you can you can learn so much mm-hmm. that you can kill a bunch, or you can learn so much that you'll never kill anything. You know, like, and it's not just changing strategy; it's learning all the strategies, and then applying it to where you're standing. You know, like if you've got five acres, you got to learn how to kill it on that five acres. Or you just go hunt somewhere else. Some people don't have that option. So like what we did, we had 6,000 acres, and you learned to kill deer on that 6,000 acres. You know, so like we just we just did what we had to do based on what we, what we learned ourselves because, like I said, people like Mike, I mean, there wasn't too many people back then that killed big deer consistently. And if they mm-hmm. did, they did not talk to you. They didn't talk to anybody, not even their own parents. Like they didn't tell anybody anything. We used to use jugs in, on the ground to, to – uh, mark trails and we didn't have bright eyes there wasn't no such thing as that we'd have like an antifreeze bottle and like a milk jug <laughs> i'm mean, like like no doubt like the biggest book one of the biggest books i ever saw ever before i was 25 years old my i'd never been in a climber before and my uncle 
uh, wanted me to go and kill. We had a big buck contest going on for the kids. It was like 14-year-olds and under. And he said, man, he said, I got about six bucks coming into the spot. He said, all of them are a little smaller basket rack deer. He said, if you want to go shoot one, you'll probably win that big buck contest. Because, I mean, what another kid going to kill a buck in the club? And I was like, all right, you know, awesome. He's like, well, I got my tree lounge in there on a tree. I'd never been in a climber before, so I'm like talking to my dad. My dad's like, if you want to get in it, get in it, but don't get hired about eight foot. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want you falling out. We didn't have safety harnesses. You know what I mean? Like, the tree lounge had a safety rope attached to it that was a seat belt, and it buckled. It was a, literally a seat belt. Like, if you fell out, you'd be in worse shape than if you just fell to the ground. <laughs> you know what I mean? But uh, anyway, I went in there, and he, he specifically wrote down on a piece of paper, you go to this is like a beer can, and then you walk straight to you got to like an antifreeze jug, and then turn left, and there were some limbs broke. And you went in there to a tree that was scraped with a knife and then went to, like, a milk jug. And, like, dude, it, it was, like, probably a quarter mile from the edge of a cutover through nothing but woods with no markers except this stuff. And I walked straight to it in the dark at, you know, 4 in the morning at 14 years old. <laughs> you know, my dad dropped me off. Just make sure you follow the paper, you know. just <laughs> You had a little mag light. Hope your batteries didn't go dead. You know, you're walking up through there. Well, there's the antifreeze jug. And I went to his climber, got in that, that, that lounger, got up there, and at about 7 o'clock, a little six-point come in there, and I killed him. He dropped in his tracks. I got down, and I'm, I'm freaking out like I was so fired up. Got him and drug him over by the tree that I was in and just laid down in the tree lounge on the ground. Like, I didn't even have it up, up the tree. You know, I just laid down in it and went to sleep. My dad said, just stay there. He said, I'll come and get you when I get done hunting and bring you back out. And I was like, all right. So I'm laying there waiting on my dad. I'm like, man, my dad's going to be fired up. It's cool. About 8.30, I hear something coming, and I'm asleep. It wakes me up. I'm like, what is that? And there's trees in there that big rubbed. I mean, like, mush on the edge of a swamp. I mean, it's like the perfect, like, if you had cameras and stuff, there's no way you would have killed a six-point in there, you know. And uh, I'm sitting there watching. There's a scrape line and stuff not 20 yards from the stand. And I open my eyes, and I'm laying in a tree lounge. My gun is unloaded in the gun holder. Deer's laying dead beside me, and I, I look over, and there's an eight-point that's probably 20 inches wide, white-horned deer. He's got tines about that long, and he's standing there 20 yards away in a scrape looking at me. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> you know, I was like, that's that deer he's been hunting. He'd seen him one time, like a like two, three weeks before, running. Couldn't get a shot at him, and uh, he walked straight to me. And I stood, I sat there and watched him. And finally, he turned around and just walked right back the way he came. Never really spooked or anything. I got up and grabbed that deer by the antlers that I had and drug him all the way back out to that cutover. I was so mad. My dad came and he was mad because I, I didn't stay put. You know, he's like, what are you doing? I was like, I just saw the biggest buck of my entire life. And I, I was sitting there with my gun unloaded. <laughs> he was like, what? I was like, oh, yeah. But he saw it there two more times. Never could kill him. The next year, they, they logged that entire thing, and it was dirt. And there wasn't a deer in the whole area. <laughs> Man. How how long did you hunt this place down in Selma? I started, well, they got it in 1980, if I'm not mistaken. We lost it in uh, 01. Why, why'd y'all lose it? Uh, the man that had it died. Oh, I got you. Yep, I got he, you. he was a gigantic plantation farmer. He had, most of it was cotton. He farmed some corn and uh, peanuts, a lot of soybeans, like tons of it. And he owned like three hunting clubs and a pay hunt place and, like, it was a giant. Everything, his house was on the property. It was a big mansion. Like, it was a cool place. And, but he passed away. He had one son that lived in Atlanta. And when he passed away, his son came to the club that year. And we were at the peak. I mean, at that point in time, we're killing one or two over 170 a year and killing five 160s. And I mean, we had, like, like everybody in the club was killing 120-inch deer every year. 
And every once in a while, there'd be like six or eight 140s and, you know, a few really big deer. And, uh, I mean, we're like the peak of the greatest place you've ever hunted. And his son came to the club that deer season and said, since Daddy passed away, so I'm going to sell it. And uh, there won't be a club after this season. So we got to hunt it one more month, and it was just gone. They just yeah. sold the entire property. He went back to Atlanta. <laughs> Man, that that hurts. All of it. Every club he had, all of the, all that land, every bit of it managed all those years. Um, crazy. I, yeah, I was a kid when this happened. I don't know how true it was back then or if it was rumor or what, but for it supposedly Dell Earnhardt tried to buy our property, that piece of property from Mr. Manor that owned it at the time. But it was, there's a bend down there in the Alabama River, makes a horseshoe, and our, our club was in the horseshoe. We were bordered on three sides by the Alabama River. Where, that, where it made that bend, it was 6,000 acres surrounded by river. There was one road going in and out of it. So, I mean, it was just like, I mean, it was, the deer were, were managed by us. They, I mean, they really couldn't even be killed anywhere else. And it was just, man, it was perfect. Yeah, that area down there is, is, I tell people all the time, it truly is like it's the best Alabama has to offer. Oh, yeah. Like that that whole Black Belt region, but especially like around Selma. You know, well, it just looks just, like deer. Like when you go down there, it just all the Spanish moss and the swamps and the <sighs> cypress trees. Like I don't know how many deer. Like I killed several, like five or six does from the ground with a bow between cypress stump roots. Like, that's what we used to do on the edge of them swamps. You find them giant cypresses where the roots come down. You get in between two of the giant ones, and deer couldn't find you. Like, you could get up on your knees and shoot deer with a bow walking through them swamps, and they wouldn't ever know you were there. You couldn't put a stand in them, you know. <laughs> They're too mm-hmm. big. But Man, I can relate to a lot of that because, like, I'm not – I'm a lot I'm, – I'm younger than you, but uh, I grew up around, like, the same type of guy that you're talking about, and – when I was a kid, it was a lot of the same stuff, man. It was like they would mark a, a trail with like toilet paper mm-hmm. or something, and yeah. then it would freaking rain. A lot of rain. flagging tape. It, it would rain, and the toilet paper would be gone, and they'd be like, follow that toilet paper in there. So you're like looking in the leaves for like bits and pieces of the yep. toilet paper to like go to try to find the stand. That's what we used to use for blood trails. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We were using that a couple of weeks ago for mm-hmm. Jacob's blood trail. The yep. unfruitful blood trail. Yep. Um, but I, I'm I'm always really glad that I grew up around guys like that, kind of for the same reason you're talking about. There there's there's just like a some I don't know, I guess they you, you made a really good point. Like they kind of set expectations of like, hey, like you might see a deer this season. Well <laughs> that, well the thing was is it was like you don't if you're gonna hunt this way, and that's what he used to say, if you wanna hunt the way I hunt, you're gonna stop seeing deer. He's like, you can go sit in these boxes on these 200-acre fields, and we were seeing 30 and 40 a day. Like, you'd have 50 does and bucks out there, you know, together. It's crazy. And when you got used to that, and I mean, you never killed big deer doing that. Not much. The guys that killed the big ones were in the woods somewhere or hunting a little different. But he was like, you start hunting like I do, you're not going to see many deer. But the ones you do see are the ones that everybody's trying to kill. And that's why now... Like if somebody, I love to take people scouting and, and teach them how to do things because no matter how much research they do, you can't learn that stuff unless you're there and see it and have somebody say, what do you see here? You know what I mean? Not, not what do you know about this map or what do you know about this spot, but what, do, what are you looking at? Like what do you think about this? What does this make you think or whatever? And 
the difference is is you can you can show somebody firsthand what it looks like to stand where a buck stands and and a lot of times it's the difference of 50 yards you know like you can look at all the topography and learn about everything you want to learn and, and seriously miss deer by just a little bit but it's just that difference of I mean, my buddy Jeremy, me and him hunt together all the time. He calls it a, a feel. You know, we'll get in a spot, and he's like, wait. He's like, you feel that? <laughs> you know, and, it's, and, and you, it's just that you come to a certain point, and you know you're about to blow deer out of there. You know, or you know it's just like, man, it's, that's it. You just smell it. You feel it. It's just in the air. You get you know? that sixth sense, man. You, d- you yeah. develop it over time. And, and that's it. And sometimes it's the difference. Like down there, I don't know. You know, what y'all usually hunt if y'all go to down flatland anywhere, really. But but down there, you know, you, you didn't have like a like a, a ridge line or like thermals. And all, it was perfectly flat and you had swamps. So, like, the deer traveled edges, but they traveled creeks, too. So, like, you, you, you'd hunt a ditch is what they called it down there all the time. You, you, everybody had their own ditch they liked to hunt during the rut. And you went and got on a ditch. And those bucks would chase those down the ditches. They used them like highways. So, you know, the first time I go to public land in and, in, you know, any kind of hilly terrain, it's like, man, I found a scrape by a ditch. He's dead. And I'd hunt there for like three weeks and not see an animal. <laughs> you know, like this is horrible. But, you know, down there you would find like you might have wide open hardwoods. And that's something that Mike was, was showing me. Like you'd be walking through these woods and it was the same thing for a mile. You know, you'd walk and walk and walk. And he's like, well, what's different about right here? And I'm like, bunch of oak trees you know and he's like well no like you see this right here and we'd be standing in like i don't even know what kind of plants they were y'all probably know it's these little bushes that are just like they're about this tall and they're just nasty like don't have leaves on they're not evergreen but they're just just a bush it's just like a whole bunch of little bitty stems and uh you see them growing anywhere on river bottoms everywhere there's rivers there's those little things that grow in the middle of wide open woods i don't know what it is but there would there would be lines of them and it may run for 100 yards or 200 yards and you could see the end of it because of this wide open woods but it's kind of like they talk about out west where you've got these deer that live in these spots in the middle of a wide open prairie and you don't think there's a deer there well you'd go in there and you know there's not a deer there because you're looking at all of it but you can go in there and get in a tree in that little line of bushes and inevitably every single deer in the entire area is going to come to that line and walk down those bushes. You don't know where he went otherwise because they went back in the hardwoods. But what Mike taught me then is, is, is that was like that hub idea where he's like, you could hunt over there where that rub is, or you could hunt over here where the scrape is. But where these bushes are, every deer off of all four of these trails will end up in this thick stuff because it's the only thing that's thick for a mile in here. And he's like, you know, it's like they feel safe for a second. I mean, they're not in there for two minutes, but you can sit here and see all the deer from all these food plots. He's like, so you got guys sitting on all of these places, but all their deer they're trying to kill are coming to this one little line of bushes. And it was a lot of places like that, you know. So the older I got, that's what I started really focusing on. It didn't matter if it was on the side of the four-wheeler trail. You know, we had a lot of roads down there that were four-wheeler only. I don't know if anybody ever does that anymore. You had roads that you couldn't drive in a truck because it'd tear them up too bad. And then other roads, you couldn't even take a vehicle down. We'd just make it was walking only. And there would be, I mean, you used to be on the road, and there would be places where there would be a, a thick, either pine thicket. Some of those, there's a lot of cutovers in Selma. Most of our club, that's where everybody hunted. 
And sometimes they would make a cutover that wouldn't be bigger than, I don't know, 40 acres or something, but it may be like long and skinny and it may cross the road like the four-wheeler road. So like you'd come up and there'd just be like a cutover that went to an end and then a cutover that went to an end. You could shoot the end of it from the road. But once it grew up and got up about, you know, six years old or so, those bucks would cross that road like crazy right there. And I could go put a tree like that little 10 point I killed up there up top. Uh, I walked in one morning and it, I had that mindset of, I need to sit on this cutover. There was some big scrapes and I wanted to be able to shoot those scrapes. And I was still in that big 10 point mode that I'd killed, you know, where it was like, I need to be able to see the scrapes and these, these rubs, whatever. And I kept hunting the side of this cutover and you could see the whole thing back then. It's like that last podcast y'all had talking about climbing high. Like, you know, we'd get up 40 or 50 foot in a tree lounge, like to the point to where you couldn't look down or you'd almost throw up. Like it might make you like <laughs> sick. And we'd get up to where you could see down in that stuff, but you wouldn't even see deer sometimes. And I was just like, man, how can I see all of this thicket? And there's all this sign, and I'm not seeing anything. And I come walking in one morning. It had been raining all night. We got up late. It was about 7 o'clock. And when the rain stopped, I went walking in there, and that 10-point run across the road in front of me through that pine thicket. The pine thicket wasn't 20 yards wide, but it was probably 200 yards long both ways. And the cutover I was hunting was the side of the pine thicket. I mean, I wasn't 20 yards from the cutover. Well, when he took off running across there, I run up there and threw my gun up on him, and he was in the cutover running straight toward my stand across that cutover. And I could just see the width, you know, going out across. I was like, man, like if I had been in my stand this morning, he would have come right by me. And then I got to thinking, I was like, well, you know, I just scared him, so I don't know where he would have gone exactly. But I went back to where he'd crossed the road, and right there in a pine thicket, never even noticed it before, ever. And there was just like a dirt trail crossing the road right there. And I was just I was like, I wonder where he was going. So I just walk up in those pines, and all those pines weren't about that big around. There was, they were small enough where you couldn't hardly see through them, but big enough you could get through there. It wasn't a lot of undergrowth. I got up in there, man. There was like two or three nice rubs on some trees and another scrape line. I was like, man, I thought I had the only scrapes in the whole area over there. So I uh, got up, borrowed my dad's old man climber he had up under his uh, camper, went in there and put it on one of them little old trees, and I climbed up like five foot just because, you know, in my mind by then, you had to be in a stand. Like, you had to get in a climber. No, no ground hunting. That's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So I get up in this old man the next morning. Um, I went in there the same exact spot. He, he was walking, climbed up a tree, and the first, I mean, the first bit of daylight, I heard sticks breaking. And he come walking across the road in the same exact spot about an hour earlier, right after day, daylight, and come walking across there. And I shot him at like 10 yards and dropped him. And I was just like, okay, that just broke my brain. Like, I've been hunting these cutovers religiously. But then I started, like, you'd have a place you could see 400 acres, you know, and I would start trying to hunt where I could only shoot 20 yards. And I got to talking to Mike about that, and Mike's like, you're starting to get it now. He said, forget about all that. He said, everybody will tell you, like, you get out here on these cotton fields. Like, we have these huge cotton fields. And you can sit out there and watch bucks chase does all day long, and they'd all be five points and little eight points and six points. He's like, if you want to kill the big one, he said, go over there, find the, the sign where it goes in the woods, and walk up in there that you can't see no more. He said, that's where the big one lives. He said, if you can find out where he's standing, climb a tree where you can shoot those footprints. He said, I don't care if you can't see nothing but them hoof prints. I was like, okay. So that's what I started doing. And it was just like Haynes and Chase said, make the big wood small. It was like make the gigantic areas like tiny, like where, where it was so thick that you just couldn't even, most people wouldn't even hunt it because you can't see. But 
It's the only place he's standing. I mean, if everywhere you see he's not standing, <laughs> there's only one place left. <laughs> it's that one little bitty thick spot. And sometimes it's like 10 little bushes, you know, depending on what you're hunting. Yeah, it's just the thickest stuff they got available That's to That's it, and they will use it every time. Yeah. Yeah, and usually the biggest buck in the area, you know, if you take, like I said, if you take five acres or 10,000, mm-hmm. you take, if there's a deer on the property, he'll be in the thickest spot on that property, just generally. Mm-hmm. The, this Mike character is pretty interesting. Is he, is he still around? Yeah, as far as I know, he's still hunting with my dad and uncle. Okay. All right. We'll, we'll, we'll save that for later. Talk yeah. to your dad and uncle about yeah. getting Mike on the podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that would be an awesome podcast. That's, uh, <laughs> that I'm intrigued. Cool. Yeah. I'm intrigued. Uh, so, man, we're going to get it. There's so many rabbit holes we can go down with this, but what? I've got one. It's, it's a segue, if you, but I'll see I, what you got. I, I was I was going to ask about after you lost that, that lease down in Selma, like, what'd you do next? Because that, that, this, this is one thing that I was actually thinking about the other day. Like, a lot of guys... A lot of guys that I grew up with, especially, they they would have a place like what you're talking about, where like you know you're kind of a kid, you like you don't really know what you got, mm-hmm. and then you lose it, and then I mean some of them quit hunting, dude. Well, the thing is, it's like I was. You can ask anybody that I hunted with when I was a kid. My cousins, all of everybody in the whole club. Like I, I had a problem. Like I was obsessed with deer, with bucks, especially since I was very small, and. I didn't care. Like I was going to hunt, but it like, it broke my brain and broke my heart. Like when we lost that land, I was thinking, okay, to kill a big buck, you have to get in a trophy club. That's how it works. It's all I'd ever done, you know, and all of my friends, I mean, by this time I was 21 when we lost the club and I was, well, I take that back. I was, it was later than that. I was 24. It was in 04 because me and Christy had just started dating and uh, we had, we had uh, hunted there since 80, and all I had ever hunted was that property. So I learned, like all of my friends, I mean, through teenager years, high school, 20s, they begged me to come hunting at my property. Like, it, it was only $20 for guest fee. Uh, Jeremy that I hunt with killed a 173 there as a guest. Whoa. Yeah, I put him in a, a wooden ladder stand right down the road from my climber where I killed that big 10 point. Mm-hmm. I was hunting another big buck in there that year had rubs on a tree that big around in the same exact spot. And we was there the same exact week. And Jeremy shot that morning. He wanted to kill a doe. Asked if he could come with me for the weekend. <laughs> and I said, yeah, there's a wooden ladder stand down here. And I should have known better. Those little pine thicket, they had just cut it about four years before, and it had grown up into this thicket. I said, you can't see nothing no more out of that ladder stand. All you can see is the road. And I said, I'm going to go get my climber down here and shoot this. It was an SMZ. We just called it a ditch, went in between these two cutovers. Well, at 8 o'clock in the morning, he shoots. And our rule was, at 11 o'clock, I'll come get you. And we had a watch. You know what I mean? I was like, at 11 o'clock, I'll come get you. If you shoot, just stay still, and I'll try to shoot me one. Well, at 11, I get over there, and he's like, in a white T-shirt, pacing back and forth, smoking a cigarette, like losing his mind. I was like, what are you doing? He said, where have you been? I said, hunting. I said, did you kill one? He said, yeah, I killed one. He said, I just killed the biggest deer on the whole club. I said, no, you didn't. <laughs> he said, did you see anything? I said, yeah, I saw a little eight point and a couple of does. And he said, I'm telling you, he said, I just killed the biggest deer on the whole club. He said, maybe the biggest one's ever been killed here. I don't know. He said, but it's a giant. I said, what is it? He said, listen. He said, a doe come running across this road. And then a little buck come running across behind her. He said, then a big seven-point come running across. And at the time, we had gone to four to a side is what our management program was then. And he was like, 
And that thing run across there. He said, a few minutes later, she come back across the road, and here he come right behind her. He said, and I shot him right between the shoulder blades, right under my stand. I said, the seven point? He said, no. Biggest deer has <laughs> ever been killed on this property. <laughs> I was like, what? And he said, come here. Well, we go over there, and this ladder stand ain't 12 foot tall. And this buck is laying dead two feet from the ladder. Oh. And it's, it's 22 and a half inside. It's got probably 10-inch tines, but it's got two six-inch stickers off of both G2s, and the sticker's up against the ground. And this buck's like, it looks like it's three foot tall off the ground, like <laughs> there's racks sticking up. It's 14 scorable points. Scored 173 gross. And I'm, I, like, walk up on it, and I, like, we didn't have game cameras. You know what I mean? We didn't know anything existed except for rubs and what might be making them. You know, it's all this, that was the intriguing thing about deer hunting is, the bigger the sign, the bigger the deer. And in your mind, it was this new world record. You know what I mean? And I woke up there and I'm like, it, this can't happen. Like, this is impossible. I don't know how this happened. Let me ask, was that the last time Jeremy was allowed to come back as a yep. guest? <laughs> Absolutely was. It, it was kind of one of those, it was, it was, it was horrible too, because one of the guys that was like one of the founding members, it was one of our great, great friends, he, uh, he had been hunting that deer for two years. And was climbing. He had a well. He had a uh, lock on, probably twenty yards from that ladder stand. And we were coming out of the woods, and he was on his way in there to hunt that spot while we were coming out because we it was past time. We signed out times that we were going to be back. You know. Well, anyway, he he was coming in, and when he pulled, we were on a four wheeler only road, and had gone in there with a the four wheeler and gotten that buck on the four wheeler with me and Jeremy both on it. And when we come out and met the main road. He was in his Toyota about to turn, and he pulled up. And when we pulled out with that buck on the back, he slammed on his brakes and slid to a stop. He got out of his truck and looked, and I got off the four-wheeler and held the rack up, and he got back in his truck, turned around, drove back to camp, and packed up everything he had, went to the house. He never came back the rest of the years. <laughs> but he, Man, he, it, br- it broke him. It was bad because, I mean, like I said, back then, you know, you didn't know what was in there. It was just like visual observation. Just, yeah, and it was saw just, a big deer kept hunting. Yeah, it was just like well, he'd found all this sign that we didn't know was in there. I mean, I had this big rubs I was hunting, but he was hunting over there in the right place, and it had these giant trees tore up, man, like it was eat up in there. And a while later, it was like, now you know, we're not trying to be ugly or anything, but like he got his deer, you know. He, He's not going to come back ever again. Like he's done here. <laughs> like okay, it's fine. <laughs> you know, because he used to come with me every year during bow season. We go kill four or five does every bow season. You know, that was our kind of thing. We went four or five days and camped out and shot does with our bows. And and uh, after that buck, that was pretty much it. But like I said, that was in '01 or '02, and we ended up losing the club just a few years later. But uh, that was that's still the biggest buck he's ever shot. When you think turkey calls. Think of Houndstooth. Houndstooth Game Calls is a company based right here in Alabama, actually based out of Tuscaloosa, and they have been making some of our favorite turkey calls since 2012. Y'all head on over to their website, see what they got. They got a little something for everybody. They have a huge selection of different mouth calls, different cuts, different read configurations. I like to go on there and get five or six different mouth calls and just run them, see which ones I like the most. You know, some days I might like the KB Hen, some days I might like the Ghost Cut. Some situations I might like the Country Girl Call, you know, that I can cut on really hard where on other situations I might like the all pro that I can get a little bit softer on. Bottom line, there's something for everybody and something for every situation and hey, you can get 15% off of your order at Houndstooth Game Calls by using the promo code SOP 
24. That's SOP24. Use that promo code. It'll get you a discount and it helps out the podcast. True Lock Chokes has been made in Georgia since 1981 and offering a wide range of chokes, over 2,000 different chokes for all kinds of shooting activities. You might be wondering why you'd want to purchase a True Lock Choke and it's to improve your shotgun performance. Absolutely guaranteed. And as a great example, we have Andrew Maxwell here. And uh, Andrew, you've had some pretty good luck, again, kind of switching out chokes and trying out the Precision Hunter choke from True Lock. So, Andrew, what's been your experience so far? Yeah, I've, always, I've used the same choke for several years now. I never really thought much of it, and I got the True Lock choke in. I patterned my gun with the first choke at uh, 30 and 50, and then I switched to the True Lock and changed from 30 to 50. And the 50-yard pattern on my gun with the True Lock choke is unbelievable like everybody's jaws were dropping like when we were out there with mike and sam we were all super impressed i mean it's throwing a better pattern at 50 now than it was throwing at 40 before my old choke and andrew you're shooting the precision hunter choke from true lock it's a great option same chokes i have in my shotgun so guys if you want to give true lock a shot this spring you can head over to truelockchokes.com that's t-r-u L-O-C-K chokes.com. You can also use the promo code Southern at checkout at truelockchokes.com and save 10% on your order. Again, give TrueLock a shot this spring, especially if you're not happy with the performance of your shotgun and shoot with a more deadly pattern with TrueLock. Did y'all, when y'all lost that club, did you like go looking for a lease? Did you start hunting no, public? No, I didn't know what a lease was. Like it, it was hunting clubs. And I was, see, I had moved up here. Me and Christy got married in 06. But I had already started working up here in Coleman. Well, I'd never been. Everywhere you left Birmingham, you always go south. Mm-hmm. Like if you deer hunt, you live in Birmingham, you go south. That mm-hmm. was just typically, back then, that's what you did. You went to Selma, Dallas County. Green County. Green County. Butler, all that. Absolutely. You know, so I'd never been north of Birmingham. I mean, I'd never been to, to Mount Olive, a Warrior. You know, I'd never been anywhere up there. So I started working in Warrior. Well, then they moved me up here to Coleman, and that's where I met Christy. So, like... Ended up moving up here, and in the meantime, like, I had not hunted anywhere else except that club in Selma when I started working up here. So it was like immediate, like, I, I move up here, and then we lost the club pretty much. So I was like, well, I've got to get in a trophy club. So, like, a buddy of mine wanted to take me to some different, like, public properties, and it was just like, what you know? I was like, I don't. Well, what are you talking about? Publicly, you know what I mean. Like people for, are shooting for every the pol- spike. Yeah, like, for the for the poor is hunting out there yeah. with the poor. <laughs> right. What are you talking what about, man? With the riffraff. What are we gonna do? Go meat hunting? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's like, what? We'll get my lever action back out. <laughs> you know? Twenty gauge like, single shot slug. No gun. way. I have to wear my flannel shirt. All kind of crazy <laughs> stuff. So like we, you know, I start looking for a club, and I end up a, a friend of mine that I'd met up here was in a club out in Marion County and, and said there was a spot open. I wanted to know if I wanted to get in. They were trophy managed. And I was like, yeah, that'd be awesome. So I got in it. And I get out there, and it was like 3,000 acres with like 65 paying members. And that didn't include family. You know, so like, I was like, wow, you know, there's a lot of people here. But it's a trophy club, so I can figure it out. You know, I get to looking around and making some plans. And some of that we'll talk about later on that other podcast. But like... Started applying some of the stuff that I knew, but it was like all these deer I'm finding. I mean, you'd kill a 110, and it was the biggest buck killed all year. And I'm like, oh no. You know, I'm like, what in the world is this? And, and like that, back at the, you know, then when we lost that club in Selma, it was only $1,400 a year. And all of a sudden, I stepped back into a $1,000 a year club that's like nothing. 
you know, like I'm, I'm finding the best spots I can find. And if you can find a 120, I mean, you done killed the deer of the year. But your hunt was so many people. I mean, it was so much pressure and everything. And, it, man, it messed me up so bad. I was like, I, I really just lost the best piece of property in the state of Alabama. You know, like now I have to hunt where all of my friends did. That's why they can't kill deer. Like now I know what happened. And it, it's like I didn't come to that realization until I was 26 years old. And, like, that's still young, but I'd been hunting since I was five. And I didn't know any different. I mean, if you didn't kill a 140-inch deer a year, like, you better keep looking because you're missing him somewhere. You know, that's how it was. I mean, we, I mean, there, that, that guy that was hunting that big buck that Jeremy killed, he killed one over 180 that had double main beams on one side. The base was over eight inches. I'm talking about an absolute monster. He hung him on the wall above the, the fireplace in the camp house. As a matter of fact, he used to leave him there. <laughs> he was huge. But we found a few deadheads over 160, 170. But that's what I was used to. You know, it's like you're always trying to find this this giant ghost that is in there somewhere, and then there'll be three killed. It's like, man, one of these days, I'm going to get me one. And the club shut down. And, and, like, when I started trying to hunt other places, like I even started looking at some other clubs, and it was even worse. And I was like, man, I don't even need to get out of this club I'm in. And I ended up in that club for eight or ten years or however long it was. And I just got out two years ago. Yeah, man, that and when you say like you realize you you'd lost like the the one of the best properties in Alabama, you probably weren't that far off. I mean, for real, because yeah. I mean, you look at a property similar to that, like if it, like if that property was for lease right now today, mm -hmm. it'd probably be eight thousand dollars a member, if not more. Oh than yeah, that. Ab absolutely. And and the thing is, we had going for us too is it wasn't it wasn't just we had tried to manage it since nineteen eighty. But since we were all family and close friends, it was so much respect between hunters where if I went there, like like the, the seven, stand seven that I killed, I mean, I killed like eight bucks there in that area. I never hunted stand seven, but I hunted all around. I signed out for seven. That's where that was my place. Well, like that road had seven A, seven B, and 13 was on that road. Well, if somebody wanted to hunt 13 or seven B, if I got there on a Friday night after school or whatever, whoever was on 13 or 7, they would go in there and erase their name and be like, hey, I took my name off there. You can have the road. So, like, every day you walked into there, you got to hunt exactly where you wanted to go. You know what I mean? If anybody else was going in there, they were going in there to check something out or hunt a place they might have just come across, mm -hmm. but it's too close to where your place is, and if you're there, they're not going in there. So you always had the option to be able to hunt your deer, you know, and and with that few members on that many acres, you could literally all be hunting a mature buck in each other's, in, in, in your own spot, you know. So there was, there was not a whole lot of reason to do a lot of moving around once you found that buck. And with enough land, you can take that one road and find a buck because, I mean, it may be 500 acres, you know, and you, you there may be three or four good bucks in there, but... Yeah, it was, man, it was such a shock to my system. And I I knew how to scout, but I didn't know how to scout terrain. And the thermal thing was new to me. I'd never postseason scouted ever. We'd always done all of our scouting during deer season. Because mm -hmm. I said we didn't kill a deer till the end of January. And you didn't have cell cameras or, or game cameras. So, you know, you, you had to find what was there while it was being made. So it was almost like you scouted like every day. You know, I mean, you hunted in the morning and then scouted at lunchtime and then hunted in the evening and then 
face the next day on what you found the day before. So it was, you know, you'd find some pretty fresh sign and really relevant stuff. We, it was a lot of deer we jumped. Like that was kind of one of our strategies is you walked till you jumped a nice buck and then you went back and tried to kill him. You know, and it worked a lot. Like it was fairly successful doing that as long as you didn't mess him up but once and then what left, you know. But you didn't have another way to find him. I mean, there really wasn't another another thing to do. But I get over like that place out there had a lot of hills and just different terrain and stuff. And, and I, like I said, I start hunting ditches and they're not walking ditches and it's just different. Um, that's when I started. Now, the other property down the road down here was the first block of, I guess you'd call it a lease, but Christie's uncle had it leased to keep people off of his farmland. Nobody had ever hunted it, really, not legally. Legally. But it was 1,700 acres, and he told me if I wanted to hunt it, I could. So I started hunting it, and that was about the time game, uh, game cameras started getting pretty popular, too. So I got me two or three and put them up in there, and that's that's when it really started messing me up because it's like nothing but terrain and mountains. And I wouldn't even get a deer on camera for like three months. Like I'd have cameras up all deer season and never get a picture. But I got to hunt it for eight, uh, no, no, six years. So, so you're telling me you married Christy because you had 1,700 acres? Yeah, yeah. That was a lot. <laughs> lot. I get this property, everything. <laughs> I mean, the first time I ever talked to her, she started telling me about like graduating with like 30 people. And like she was in like the, like, uh, what do you call that? With like ag classes where they teach you how to like score cattle and stuff. I was like, I'm moving here. Because <laughs> like growing up, I mean, growing up in Birmingham as a avid deer hunter and fisherman, you know, like it's you're one of a thousand. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I what, graduated. What part well, of Gr- uh, Birmingham did you grow up in? Clay, just outside of Trustville. Oh, okay, okay. I was, you know, Clay Chalkwell High School. Oh is? yeah, oh, I was yeah. the first graduating class. Okay, when they built that high school. Interesting, cool. So like, I graduated with almost 400 people in my senior class, you know, whereas Christian graduated like 60, you know, I mean, and it's the difference. It's like, I mean, up here, it's like, I start hanging out up here and it's like, why would you pay for land? It's like, well, you got to get in a trophy club. It's like, well, no, like my uncle's got 80 acres down here. And then my other uncle's got, you know, 1700, my other uncle's got, and it's like, what? You know, <laughs> but I mean, who hunts 40 acres? It's like, well, I mean, he killed one last year. You go look at some of them. They go in their house and they got like ten mounts on the wall this big, and it's like, good grief! <laughs> what in the world? So, but I, I literally, we were married for probably five or six years before I ever set foot on that property. With him telling me every year, man, you need to go hunt this. I'm telling you, there's deer all over. I'm like, eh, I want to hunt down the road. Like, I need to be in a hunting club, like a trophy club. That's where big deer are. And finally, my buddy Ryan was like. We need to go back here and hunt this. We, at the time, Nathan was teaching a, a Sunday school class, and Ryan was in that class. Me and him started going to his class. And he started telling us, man, y'all really need to go out there and hunt this. Like, both of y'all, you just go out there. So that point, we finally talked ourselves into it. It's like, okay. Nobody had been on this property for 20 years. The roads, you couldn't even see them. I mean, it was like briars as high as the ceiling. We had to go in there with four-wheelers and run over all that stuff. <laughs> took us months to where we could even access it. And uh, the first... The first scrape that we ever found was about this big. And it was like, finally, we finally found sign. And it was just in a logging road. And uh, Ryan actually borrowed one of my tree stands and got over there. And I went and got on another spot where it was just like a ditch. You know, I'm like, I'm going to punt this ditch. <laughs> and uh, the first day he ever sat there, he killed a 164. Uh, <laughs> oh, my god! Killed a 164-inch 11-point. And it. It changed the way I deer hunted like that day. Y'all still got that 1,700 acres? 
uh, lost it two years ago. Man, all this losing property. Uh, the, mm. the timber company had been Timberland for 50 years. Timber company sold it about four years ago to another timber company, and they went way up, like tripled the price on the land. Nathan said he wasn't going to get it. So he was like, I ain't going to be able to hunt back here no more. Like, I got rid of the property. I was like, oh, no. Because by then, like, I was killing like two a year off of it. And the following year, somebody had leased it that year and couldn't access it because it was landlocked. And he wouldn't let him in the property. <laughs> so, like, they finally called him back the next year. He was like, listen, if you'll lease all this, we'll lease it back to you at the old price that the other company was. Well, he calls me, like, I don't know, a week before December. And was like, hey, I got this land back if you want to go hunt it. So I went in the first day. I went in there and said I killed a nine point. But, like, Ryan, when, when he killed that big deer the first year we had it, like, it was where the deer came from was the exact opposite of anything that I ever thought that I ever knew. But all I had been good at hunting was flatland, swamps. You know, and this deer just come right, like, up a cliff down the side of a bluff in some thick stuff. But, like, nowhere I thought a deer would go unless you scared him or shot him. You know what I mean? And he's just in there walking around. And I, we, we, he's hunting the logging road, expecting a deer to walk down the logging road and check the scrape. You know, with that buck come up, was going to cross. He walked right into that scrape and was crossing that logging road. You know, so you've got literally, I mean, you could sit there on that entire logging road and you've got a spot that wide where there's deer. <laughs> you know, and it was on both sides of it. I mean, just thicket. And the thicket wasn't 10 foot wide in hardwoods. But if you knew what you were looking for, even with the terrain, because it was the same thing I hunted in Selma, mm -hmm. but it was on the side of a cliff. And, like, I'm looking, I'm like, this ain't where the deer going to walk, you know. But there's a scrape. So, apparently, he's coming down this road and checking the scrape, go back the other way. But, no, he come right out of the depths of just, <laughs> uh, you know. It's just like, like when Ryan was telling me, because I was like, where did this deer come from? And he's like, dude, you're never going to believe it. And he walked back over there and started showing me. So, then, obviously, we had to go off down in there. You know, it's just like, let's, let, like, I've got to figure this out. Because what we're doing is not right. You know, whatever, I, like, I've been, this is not working. So when we went down in there and started finding sign, it was like, what in the world? Which, you know, I, I was kind of, I was kind of half taught not to really care why bucks do what they do. Like, I, as I've gotten older, I like to know, I, now, I guess, I guess I've learned what they're doing. I guess the best way to put mm -hmm. it. I still don't care what, why they're there. It's just a matter of when they're there and if it's daylight. But once I learned that deer and what he did on that terrain, then you could start kind of repeating it. But it was just a matter of finding out where they walked. It didn't really matter what the terrain looked like. If the bucks are using it, that's why. It's because it's horrible. <laughs> real, real. One thing I want to touch on, because um, getting to a point, probably going to start working on wrapping up, but probably we still got, you know, we can do another 20 minutes or so. I want to talk about, Recently, the last couple of years, you transitioned to hunting public land. Mm -hmm. You killed these two bucks that are sitting next to you. Probably some of the viewers are wondering, like, why these two, you know, skull caps. Wild double drop tine sitting there. Yeah, yeah. these two bucks sitting <laughs> next to you. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about. I'm trying to think how we can talk about some of this stuff without going into too many too many details that we're going to talk about in a different episode. Right. But like, what were like? What are some lessons you've learned after hunting public for a little bit now, and like the success you've had this year? And how that kind of transitioned into your book, The Mountain. Um, 
I guess the difference between taking where where people are at, I didn't realize how much I had learned how to hunt pressure until I went to public and all you heard about was hunting pressure. And it was like, pressure can mean a lot of different things. Like I've actually had lease land now. It's got more pressure on it from dogs and neighbors than hunters. But growing up, I learned how to hunt around people and what the deer were doing based on boxes and food plots and cotton fields. So like when I went to public, it was it was like I could go in there and if where the people were at, all I needed to do was find those horrible places where there weren't people. <laughs> you know, and it was just like immediately it almost made it easier because of what I had learned hunting so which, you know, when I was a kid it wasn't that much pressure, but that club that I, the newer club I was in with all those people, I mean, I was in it for so long because I, I really honestly didn't think I could find anything any better. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was very convenient. I had a camper out there. There's great roads. Everything's well-maintained and a bunch of great guys. It was just a bunch of great guys. <laughs> you know, that was, that, was, that was the thing. So like, it was, it was a very safe place. Christy liked it. You know, I could take her out there. We always saw deer and it was, had, had a bunch of turkeys. That was my main thing. Like I, I didn't have anywhere to turkey hunt and I, I didn't do that when I was a kid. So when I had started turkey hunting in my twenties, this place was full of turkeys. I was like, well, it's worth the money just to have a place to turkey hunt. And once I learned how to kill deer on that club with all those people and could consistently kill a nice buck here or there, like when I started hunting public, it was almost like I got to kind of get a little bit of relief from the crowds but still use that same figure out where people would go and then do the opposite. And that's kind of what the book, like if you read that book, Every single chapter is a scout or a hunt. And I tried to pretty much document everything I was thinking. You know, so it kind of walks you through literally the entire time I'm learning how in the world I'm supposed to do that while thinking that the deer probably are not even going to be the same kind of animal. Because you don't, you know, in your mind, if you've never, ever hunted public and you're transitioning, it would be just like going from public to private. Like what y'all talked about the other day, how the deer are just acting like they're supposed to and you're trying to overthink things and hunting them harder than you need to, and you're missing deer because they're just standing there in the hardwoods. Well, it's the same thing kind of going to public. It's like you expect the deer to be a whole different animal, but once you realize what people do, and like like what Mike used to tell me, if you if you walk where people walk and then memorize that, back then you had to memorize it, now you got a track on your app, but, <laughs> but used to, if you memorized where people walked and then divided that into the blank space, they call it negative space if you're doing art. There's negative space and positive space. Well, the negative space is where there's no tracks. People track. Mm-hmm. Well, that negative space, when you can find the thick or the horrible in that negative space, that's where your biggest deer is going to be in that area. And it don't matter if it's five acres or 100. You know, when you can, like, it's like what I was talking about talking to uh, people like Pablo Esquivel that mm-hmm. I've taken scouting a few times. I told him, don't open your map. Do not use your GPS. I've got a pen that I want to go scout, but I want you to walk where you would walk if you were a hunter. And I'd turn my tracker on, and we'd walk, and we'd go straight down a ridge and straight down a logging road and straight down a hillside and straight down the easiest. And we'd get in there, and finally I'd be like, okay, we need to turn right. We need to go to this pen. We'd go in there and scout. And, and then I'd look at my map, and I'd show him. I'm like, you see this track right here? This is the way every single person is going to walk into this spot. And if you hunted any of the sign we found on the way here, every buck's coming in there at night. You know, so 
Now we need to figure out where the deer go because of that line. <laughs> that makes me think about where we were just hunting, dude. <laughs> because that, you know, that's how we hunted in Selma. That's how I was taught to hunt. It's like all these people are here and the bucks are going to here. Mm -hmm. And then when I hunted out there, it was very important. Like I killed several deer between my truck and a, and a, a box where it would be like you park at a gate and there'd be a four-wheeler trail behind the gate. We kept the gates locked, but there'd be a four-wheeler trail that went to a green field. And there would be, you know, like a shooting house on that green field. Well, you'd have a person with a lock on on the green field. You'd have a person with a ladder stand on the green field. And they'd be bow hunting it or hunting a different spot on it or whatever. But those big deer would be crossing that four-wheeler road. And they'd be parallel in the main road. And, I mean, you could see them from the truck if you were sitting there. <laughs> you know what I mean? They'd walk 20 yards from your truck. Or they'd walk 50 yards from the box behind it where there wasn't a window cut in the door. You know, and there was these major trails. I'm talking about dirt with rubs all along them. But you didn't care. It was like that 10-point I jumped in the rain. I passed that trail a thousand times and probably had giant tracks in the road and thought, I need to be on this cutover to kill this buck because I can see. You know, whereas all I had to do was get in a tree this big around and be able to shoot 10 feet, and he was there the next day. You know, and, and in that club, I started figuring out when you get those little strips of small pines or a little strip of, all it has to be is a, a briar thicket that's 100 yards long. And if it crosses one of them roads between a truck and a, a shooting house or, you know, behind the camp house, you know, like somewhere where it's just blank, this negative space that nobody is using, when you can find a little strip of that, thickness or, or edge or cliff, you know, or something, that buck's going to be there, and there's going to be one in every one of them. And, and people are getting pictures of all these bucks at night. And they're not leaving. They're, they're there somewhere, and they're, all they're doing is walking around you. They're even moving during the daylight. you just got to gotta be willing to park your truck and then walk around the bend and just get in a tree. And you feel like you need to go somewhere. <laughs> you know, you're sitting there, it's like, I'm not there yet. <laughs> it's how it feels. But after you do it for a while and start consistently killing or seeing, then it's like, okay, like this is the good spot. You know, then you don't want to go in further. You want to be there. And then sometimes it's two miles from the truck. Sometimes you can see cars going down the road. Mm -hmm. It just depends on that spot and what everybody's doing around you. And I, I think that plays a huge part of it too, especially with public land. Because I even made the comment to Jamie McKay about two years ago. Me and him were talking. One of the first times I'd ever, I'd ever met him, he, he, uh, he'd come over to the house. We were talking for a few hours. And I was just kind of not really racking his brain, but trying to figure out what I was in for, you know. And I, I even made the comment to him that, like, I said, I don't want to know where any of your spots are. But everywhere that I want to go scout, I really want to show you and send you a pen because I don't want to go into a place where you're at and compete with you. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I want every, every one of the best deer hunters, I want to know that they're not going. I said, if, if, if it's a spot where you hunt, if you'll tell me, I will never go in there again. You're going to have to trust me to do that. But if you don't tell me, I'm going in there. We're going to be competing. Because if I find a good spot and you tell me that you don't care, then I'm hunting it. You know, but I'm going to give you the option. Like, I don't want to compete with any of those guys. Mm -hmm. And, like, he told me, he was like, He's like, the thing is, he said, everybody out here does very similar stuff. It's just a matter of learning what that is. And that, I mean, that's the same thing that Mike had told me back then. You know, and Jamie's been hunting out there all his life like Michael Perry. You know, and once you, once you go out there, it took a while to, 
to figure out how important it was. But those deer, I mean, they, they already know but before you even show up. But I was under the impression that I was going to find places nobody had ever been over there. You know, you take a, I mean, when you take a block of public, like let's say it's a small block of public land. Let's say it's 10,000 acres, still bigger than any club I've ever been in. You know what I mean? If it's 20,000 acres, it's even way bigger than that. I mean, it's a huge piece of property, especially when you start considering that you're taking mature bucks and you've got their entire home range the whole season or the whole year in that block of land. So you're not confined to boundaries. You don't any longer have deer leaving your club or coming to your club. You can you can look for that deer all year long. And once those deer know where all those people are, they're going to make that adjustment. The older they get, the sooner they make that adjustment, the more they learn. But I really did think that I would find places nobody had ever been because the land was so big to me. And Jamie told me when he was down there talking to me, he said, one thing that you're going to find out is that somebody is not only where you've already been, but there will be people on your camera in places you thought nobody's ever been. <laughs> like, there's a lot, there's going to be a lot of more people in there in places that you would never consider. And that was 100% true. Like, immediately, the first several cameras I put up, it's like I'm getting people on them. Like, I started noticing where limbs had been trimmed, or like people had been in, like, especially when deer season got started, places I'd scouted that looked like it was like pure in the middle of nowhere. I'd go in there during deer season, and it looked like somebody had been walking, like, from the truck door. You could find a trail going all the way down through the woods, like, where people had been in so many times. And I was like, wow. But that's, that's when I really, because I was kind of thinking, too, that maybe the deer weren't as pressured because of the size of the land. But just because of the terrain, there's only certain ways to go certain places. And immediately, like, when I realized how many people were in so many deep areas and, and just everywhere, I started noticing these big areas where there weren't any people. And it was like, some of it's like super obvious and some of it's not. But the deer were just adjusting accordingly. And it, it, it became easy. Like, the, the second year we scouted, I erased every pen that I had. I was talking about that in my book where it was like, okay, the first year I was like, I know where they're at now. <laughs> and then like the next few chapters, it gets into like, I was wrong. <laughs> it's like I had to delete almost all the pens off of my map. And then I started pinning people. So instead of trying to pin what I needed to look at, I started pinning where everybody was at, started pinning gates. And then started pinning logging roads and tracking all that stuff and making like lines on my map and then just seeing what was left. And then I just put a pin in the middle of that. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I'm going to go look there just to see if there's a thick spot. And, you know, nine out of ten times there's not. I mean, you're liable to walk for ten days and see nothing but oak trees. But every once in a while you'd find a spot that it was just different in an area where there was no lines and pins. And... Uh, you know, you'd find some big sign or whatever in there, and as soon as you start sitting, I mean, we'd see six or seven bucks. You know, some of them would be small or whatever, but um, then this year we was able to finally, you know, capitalize. We shot two deer last year. Each one of us shot at one that we lost. But uh, that was kind of just blind luck because, well, it was places we had scouted that were good places, but we had not had cameras up. Um to find out when the deer were in there. so, But it was, uh, it was a learning curve. 
I mean, I'm, I feel like now I kind of know what's going on, but I still feel like this next year, like I may not see anything. Like that's what I'm, that's what I'm really scared about now. It's like this year we, we had eight, but we saw eight bucks chasing does in a matter of like three weeks. Like it was pretty awesome. And it was like, finally, like now we've got it. And I told Jeremy, I said, next year, like we're not going to see anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we're going to build this up. Like we know exactly what's happening and it's just not going to be there. Cause there, there was a lot of deer that I had on camera a year before last that never showed up this year mm-hmm. that it was the right time. It was the right place, but they could have been killed. You know what I mean? Like a lot of people that kill really big deer on public land, you never know it, you know? And I learned <laughs> that too. Like we, in, in a club, you kill a big deer, and you call people on the phone. Like, you're sending pictures to folks in the club. You know, on public land, like, you can check any Facebook page you want and listen to any social media you want, and you'll find about 2% of the big deer that get killed off those properties. That is 100% true, That's what I've man. learned as a taxidermist. Like, oh, yeah. Like, the taxidermy thing is kind of what got me into public land because of what was coming off of just general public land, but also like what surprises you that gets killed, even on private land around here that's not hunting clubs. Like if somebody has permission to hunt a 20-acre farm and they kill a 150 off of it every year, they they won't let me put it on Facebook when I mount it. You know what I mean? And it's 20 acres. Yeah. <laughs> but it's the right 20 acres for four days you know what i mean <laughs> and it, you know i don't blame them I mean, it's the way it is but but it's just it's really interesting learning it's fun learning something different mm-hmm. that's what's really fun is is finally being able to get it right like these two deer right here i mean that that deer was one to 128 inches so he scored almost exactly the same as my my 10 i killed when i was 15 mm-hmm. they're both 128 inch deer and uh so like to be able to have finally done that after so many years of like, I have no idea what I'm trying to figure out. Like it's, it was fun to just learn a whole different kind of strategy. Cause now I really feel like, like going to get into complete public land. Now I have that option to where I, I don't feel where I need to go and hunt my club because it costs so much money. You know, that's kind of where I was at. It was like, I got to where I was discouraged, but man, I paid for it, you know, so I needed to hunt it. Whereas now, like if I just get out everything, then now I can go hunt swamps and I can hunt mountains, <laughs> you know, and I can hunt cutovers. So like, I'm really interested to see like, we're fired up about going scouting after this season. Cause I want to go and look at a lot of different properties all over the place because I'm so used to I me. Mean, I grew up hunting a whole different way than I hunted the last two years, but now I think I can do it both ways. And I really want to like prove that to myself. That's, that's kind of what it was with the public things. Like I know how to kill deer. What is wrong? Like, why can I not? It was really frustrating the first year because I was like, I'm not this bad at deer hunting, <laughs> you know, but I can't even find one. But now that I've kind of kind of learned some stuff, like I think that I'll be able to go and kind of repeat it. But I don't yeah. know. I may never kill another deer the rest of my life. Man, we're, we got a, we got another episode planned with you that's going to be crazy. It's, it's going to be good. It's going to be the rabbit hole of rabbit holes. Yeah. But uh, you mentioned your book a couple times. Why, why don't you plug your book and your YouTube channel for us real quick? Absolutely. Yeah, it's, the book's called The Mountain, and uh, my YouTube channel is The Cedar Ridge Chronicles. Been on it for about two years. The book, it took me about two years to write. I had open heart surgery two years ago, and it that's what kind of changed the direction I was doing everything because there's a lot of stuff I'd never done that I always wanted to try. And so it was just like, you know what? Like, I didn't die this time, so maybe the only chance I get to do this. So I just started doing everything different. And that book basically is like 
a chronicle of everything that's happened. It was like me thinking what what was happening, and I wrote it all down. I actually took a, my phone and used it as a voice recorder. So as I was hunting, as I was scouting, as I was videoing, I was saying stuff into my phone that I would come back and write down on paper so I never forgot it. And even go back writing the book, man, it was, it was like extremely interesting to read what I had thought after I forgot about it, especially going back and reading it years later, you mm-hmm. know, and being like, man, like, because it really takes you back to that moment, even more than like a video. Like it's weird, like what was going through your mind and actually writing it down. But the cool thing is too, is I've also got a video for every chapter. So like every chapter in there is like a specific date or set of dates. And I've got all of it videoed too on my channel. So like as you're reading the book, you can read a chapter and then go back and look at that that video that's dated that date and watch the video of the chapter. <laughs> like as it played out, the scouts, everything. You know, it's it's really cool. It was, it was really emotional, honestly, because to have survived that heart surgery and then tried to transition into something completely different while you're afraid that you might die, you know, and go from, because I mean like, I mean, I was used to riding four-wheelers in and all that kind of stuff. Well, man, you go from like being what you think is extremely healthy to then being like an open-heart patient and having to like hike mountains and walk miles and all that stuff. Like, it's a lot, there's a lot going on in your mind that may or may not happen, you know. But like I said, it's all in that book, <laughs> pretty much like. I said I wasn't going to finish it. Michael Perry was asking me, it was probably a year ago, He's like, we was kind of talking about it. When he released his book, I was like, man, I can't believe you just released a book. Like, I'm like in the middle of writing when everybody's going to think I wrote a book because you did, you know. And uh, he was like, what are you writing about? And I said, I'm, I'm writing about killing my first buck on public land. And he said, well, when is it going to end? <laughs> I said, it might not ever end. <laughs> I said, That's what I'm worried about. Like, I might be writing this thing for like 20 years, <laughs> you know. But I just kept, I kept on. Like, every single time we'd go, you know, I'd, I'd write. You know, we'd go and I'd write. We'd go and I'd write. And uh, finally, like, I didn't. It's funny because I, I did end the book with this with this deer, you know, with this drop down because he was my first one that I ever killed off public land, and that that deer's not even in the book. Yeah. <laughs> Your first deer on public land is a double drop ton buck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I mean you know he's he's cool. I like him. Yeah, he's real cool. <laughs> but uh, but it you know it was it was just it was just crazy because I did kill this deer um, during the book. But even wrote about how it was it was not a disappointment, but it was it was not it's not what I wanted. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I wanted to kill a deer on public land and we had hunted it so hard and I'd shot that one and lost it. Mm-hmm. And then went to my private land in January and killed that one. It was just like this is awesome and all, but man, you know, golly, I want to kill on public. So bad I knew I had to wait another year. But by then, you know, we, we kinda had a plan. So um but I did, I, I told Christy, I said I want to keep writing so bad because after I killed this bucket, wasn't it like a week later I killed that other one and I was like, man, I ain't finished my book yet. Like I could just keep on, like on through this deer season and end it. And finally I was like, no. I said, this whole thing, I said, it's not about just about deer hunting. You know, it's about the journey of of what it's like to to find deer. That's what I wanted the book to be about. It was, I don't know if y'all ever seen The Old Man in the Sea or read the book, but that, that was one of my favorite stories of all time because it's this epic tale of this old man trying to catch a fish, and he finally catches this giant fish, and sharks eat the whole thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> but, like, it was just like, like man, that, like, that's, like, that's how it was deer hunting in 1985. 
You know what I mean? Like you, you did everything that you thought you could do. And in your mind, it was right. And then one day it worked out and you did everything right. Whereas nowadays, everybody thinks they do everything wrong because of what they think they know. You know, and, and, and like I said, it's, it's important, man, to learn all that stuff. But until you kill a big buck, you don't learn anything. And, and most of the time, a lot of the guys that I talk to that, that kill their first big one, something happened that discredited half of what they thought they knew, even though they were doing everything by what they had learned. It's kind of like your first turkey. I mean, you know, I know some folks watch this play turkey hunt. Like, it takes you 20 years to kill a turkey. You kill one, you kill 20. You know, and, and big deer are the same way. They don't do the same thing as does and small bucks. And once you figure out that little bit of difference, then it's just finding the biggest one. <laughs> Man, there's so many gold nuggets in there. But like, like I said, we got another podcast planned with you where we're going to like seriously get into the rabbit hole on this. It's probably, it might end up being a series just because I like we're, we're going to go for a long time. Because yeah. <laughs> we're probably going to get a bunch of questions about the swamp stuff too because we've gotten questions here lately about uh, swamp hunting and uh, and your background with that would be like a really interesting mm-hmm. conversation. But there's just, there's so much to cover there. But uh, Jacob, do you have anything else before we wrap this up? I mean, I know you do, but do you have anything else for this conversation? <laughs> Probably not, because, I mean, we could go for another 30, 45 <laughs> minutes pretty easy. Uh, but, no, Daniel, appreciate you joining us for this episode. Oh, and, that's great. Yeah, again, excited for the book coming out. Uh, again, guys, go check out the YouTube channel. Uh, Cedar, Cedar, I got, can't talk, Cedar, Cedar the, Ridge. The Cedar Ridge Chronicles. The Cedar Ridge Chronicles on YouTube. YouTube. Uh, yeah, the book's on Amazon. work for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, dude. You think I wrote that book? <laughs> <laughs> dude, I'm not writing a book. Let me tell you. It'd, it'd be bad. Real bad. Man, you I got a- AI for that. You could get AI to write a book for you. Yeah. You hit up chat GPT, be like, how do you find big bucks in Alabama? <laughs> I'm Actually, I'm going to go home. I'm going to type that in and see what it says. Just I'm really curious about what it says now. <laughs> But uh, anyways, but no, I, I'm excited. I'm excited for postseason, your postseason scouting. I th- we're going to do quite a bit as well. There's some properties I want to kind of expand upon a little right. bit further and really just trying to get a better idea going into this next season of what could be learned specifically on how properties lay out, what the pressure, look, because like the cool thing about postseason scouting you can see where everybody's been at. Yep. Trash. Yeah, and, I, and I'll just put a little nugget in here for the for the, the, the later on mm-hmm. podcast. Like, everybody needs to go do some postseason scouting. And just remember what you find. Because you're going to need it later. Drop some pins. Yeah, you're going to need it later. Okay. Okay. And Spr- something else, too. It didn't give you all enough credit or any credit. But, like, <laughs> I'd never even – like, I'd never even heard of y'all's podcast until, like, a couple years ago. And a buddy, the buddy of mine that got me in that club out there was like, have you ever listened to Southern Outdoors podcast? And I was like, no, I never listened to a podcast day in my life. He said, man, you need to listen to it. It was really cool. So I started turning it on and listening to it when I was in my shop working. And a few of those episodes was kind of got me what thinking a little bit different direction. And uh, so, I mean, I appreciate that too because it's like it's kind of cool being able to listen to a bunch of different aspects of how to find deer, especially when you're trying to transition into different terrains and structure and like bass fishing, you know, like mm-hmm. every person's got a different tactic. But the more of you learn, like it starts getting fun. 
Absolutely. Being a well-rounded deer hunter. So, mm-hmm. uh, other than that, again, uh, very excited for part two episode. Probably, like Andrew said, probably going to turn out to be a series because uh, one of the episodes we're going to get you and Shane Parker on an episode together. I talked to him. Nah, ain't no way we're fitting that in like two hours. Yeah, I talked no to Shane. Way. Shane messaged me last night. We got to talk about a few spots. And I was like, yeah, we started sending each other pictures back and forth. Pretty soon it was maps and pens, and it was game care pictures. I was like, man, we're going to be up till 3 in the morning. Oh, dude, listen, you get on a good text thread with Shane, it's going to last. One time we had Shane come over to do a podcast, and it ended up being four hours and 45 minutes. It was, so, it was a four-part series. Four, Absolutely. And I, I was like, we did, we're not re- releasing this for one week. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, we're stretching, the, we're milking this one. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, it's fun, and it's kind of cool. Like, I, I mean, I'm honored to be on here. It's funny because me and Jeremy joked around a couple of years ago. I was like, man, if I could just be on the Southern Outdoors and podcast, like maybe one of these days. You know, like here we are sitting here in my living room. Like, it's crazy, you know. But That's it really awesome. is cool, like, because you sometimes, I mean, I don't feel like I'm the best deer hunter. I mean, I don't have any giant deer on the wall, period, not compared to some of these guys I've met now. But at the same time, it really is neat finding out how much you know when you didn't really realize how much you had learned. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like, I, I try to thank everybody for giving me credit just because, like, I don't ever feel like I know that much compared to some other folks. But, you know, we kind of forget sometimes. I talked to you about this the other day that, that we're, we're kind of the elite deer hunter. I mean, maybe we don't have a bunch of 180s on the wall. But when you look at our group as a, as a general whole mm-hmm. between social media or people that just like to kill big deer or try to, there's not that many hunters that do it. Yeah, it's mostly like anyone that's listening to this podcast right now kind of falls in that same category because they're trying to, like us, we're trying to yeah. learn how to become more successful, you know, kill mature deer. But, like, what is what does it take to be like a Jamie McKay and kill, like, that's, some of the top-tier bucks in an area? Absolutely, and, and that's that's the difference is, like, when you, you know, you start to see, like, some, some repetitions, like, yearly where people get, it gets popular to do a certain thing. And it's it's that way with a bunch of stuff, you know. <laughs> Speaking about that, uh, we had a listener go on uh, our Facebook group, which is the Run Gun White Owners uh, Facebook group, and he made a post. He's like, man, I've been here about on the podcast this term called roadbeds. What's a roadbed? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, people are that's com- 2024, dude, baby. People comment, and then Paul, our buddy Paul Patera, is like, man, that's what everybody's going to be hunting in 2024, 2025, <laughs> roadbeds. <laughs> yep. That's absolutely right. Uh, yeah. That's so true. Yeah, 22 was a thermal hub. 23 was a SMZ. Yep. 24 is going to be a roadbed. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm telling you, you've got to make some more lines on that map. Like, every, right. every roadbed, don't want them. <laughs> <laughs> yep. that's, yeah. that's so true. Mm-hmm. That's so but true. It, it's interesting how people how people learn, but you know, you take that many people that's learning. I mean, like I said, we we take for granted what we know, mm-hmm. and because of the people we know and what we learn from each other, and then you take the other thousand. You know, we're the ten out of a thousand. Well, I mean, it's crazy when you get to talking to folks like how amazed they are that you did this or know this. It's like, man, I learned that when I was like seven, but you forget the people that. If somebody's willing to take their time, like to me, from what I learned, like that's more important than than a lot of stuff you can read online. Like it's it's awesome being able to sit next to somebody or have somebody take you in the woods that you know for a fact kills big deer and give you just a, a snippet of one spot. And if you can see what that looks like, a lot of times it's not just repeating it. It's it's flips your brain 
to think in a different way. Yeah, so that hundred percent. Yeah, and that happened for me this year when I got to bow hunt with Shane Parker a little bit and my buddy Michael Pike, and then also Michael Perry as well. And like, I never like went in the woods with Shane, mm-hmm. but like on one of the hunts, he's like, "Dude, you need to go to the spot." He's like, "I got a camera spot. Go to the spot." And I felt like I was hunting like my uncle again, where he was just like, yeah. just walk to this tree, kind of <laughs> yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. I walked in, and I'm like, dude, this place is crazy. And he's like, yeah, I know. That's why I'm putting you there. That's why you're going there. Right. And screwed the pooch. I, he's like, he's like, I, I text him, have all set up. And all these deer came into this spot. They're coming down to this little watering hole. And uh, I'm like, yeah, you know, they, just, they didn't get within range. He's like, where'd you sit? And I explained. He's like, dude, you're supposed to sit right on top of that spot. Like, don't back off. Like, sit yep. right there. I'm like, well, dang. Okay. Yeah, mm. Absolutely. Because like I says, sometimes it's at 50 yards. Oh, that's exactly like every, how that was. I mean, if I shoot a deer with a 30 alt 6 it's usually a 20-yard shot. Well, he told he, t- <laughs> he, he didn't tell me this before I went in there, but after the fact, he's like, dude, I've had a, like a really good buck come to that spot almost every evening, getting some water from that spot and feeding in that area. And he's like, because I told him I, I saw some does, I could hear something coming up through the thick stuff through the bottom. I was kind of up above it a little bit where I could shoot down to it, but like I couldn't shoot down like through the thick stuff. Right. He's like, dude, if you would have sat down there, you might would have saw him. He's like, he's there. I'm like, why'd you not tell me that beforehand? You told me that after I get <laughs> he back. Was, he, he was testing you. you. Yeah, he, yeah. Get, he tells me get, when I get back to camp. But, yeah, he's but, testing them woodsmanship skills. But but that was a cool thing, kind of like, even though I didn't go in the woods with Shane, but just talking to Shane and like going and like seeing, like once I got into the spot, like seeing his thought process and that stuff, it like changed my perspective on some of that as well. And that's one thing like I, I tell everybody is like, if you get a chance where there's a guy in your hunting club, you know, guy hunting the same piece of public land that you could talk to and just be as on. Like, first off, you got to be trustworthy, okay? Mm-hmm. You can't yeah. be the kind of guy that where right. you, you, he takes you to a spot and never, the next, next thing he knows, he sees your truck never every Saturday. Never hunt the man's spot. Absolutely. That's it. Yeah. You never go back into the, the same spot. You never, if someone takes you to the spot. Unless you got permission. <laughs> yeah, you don't t- you don't go back to that same spot unless you, again, ask permission or he they bring it back up to you about going to check that out again. But, like, if you can go in the woods and spend time with somebody like that, you can learn so much that, like, again, you can't even get some of that from a podcast. Because, like, right. it's one thing to hear somebody talk right. about. It's another thing to actually see their thought process in the field. Kind of like with you and Mike mm-hmm. back when you were growing up and yep. him actually showing you, explaining stuff in the field. It's one thing he could have told you about that at the truck. It probably wouldn't have clicked versus, like, being there and actually no, seeing. And, and, yeah, and that difference even where the tree he's in. You know, like, like you could walk in there and, and really seriously walk right past – where all these deer hit the ground and never know the difference. You know, I'd done it a million times before and did it a million times after, you know, just learning different different types of that kind of stuff. But but it really, like, it really makes a huge difference being there with somebody that is willing to take a left when all your brain wants to do is go straight or take a right. I mean, there's nothing like walking in the woods scouting and getting about to where, like, if you pin a spot, there's nothing like going in there to that pin and being like, I want to look over there, and that's what everybody else wants to do. I'm going over here and just taking the craziest turn and going over here in this awful bunch of mess, and all of a sudden you pop out in the greatest honey hole you ever found. And he's right there the whole time. Somebody's climbing that tree and can't see him. <laughs> oh, man. You know, and they're everywhere. That like fires said, me up. Yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome. And when you've got acreage that you can walk doing it, man, it's – it's just the possibilities are endless. Well, to wrap up this episode, again, uh, listeners, viewers, 
Down in the show notes below, you'll see a link again for The Mountain, the book. Again, written by Daniel himself along with his YouTube channel. So go check those out. Give him a subscribe. Purchase the book. Give it a shot. And uh, also, guys, we appreciate y'all watching the podcast. Appreciate y'all listening to the podcast. Appreciate everybody writing in awesome Q&As. Again, we're super excited for this upcoming week's uh, Q&A uh, question and answer podcast on another outro. And uh, listen, guys, turkey season is now coming upon us okay hopefully to see you guys at nwtf we're gonna be bouncing around from a couple different booths we'll make an announcement here a couple different places that you guys can come and hang out with us at nwtf in nashville tennessee uh just in just really a couple of weeks to be 100 percent honest mm-hmm. like yep. a week now yep. mm-hmm. so anyway appreciate y'all watching appreciate y'all listening and we'll catch y'all back here on the next episode from the southern outdoors and podcast and remember guys y'all stay southern Y'all go ahead and write down the dates, June 28th through June the 30th. Go ahead and just mark those off your calendar so you can be at the Dalton Convention Center in Dalton, Georgia for the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo. Y'all heard a a ton of content from that expo last year that we posted. Uh, We talked about it a ton. Look, if you're the kind of person that listens to this podcast, this show was literally made for you. It was literally designed for you, which means you're going to love it. You know, all the best companies in mobile hunting are going to be there. A lot of the best deer killers in the Southeast are going to be there. A lot of our past podcast guests are going to be there. It's just, it's going to be an incredible event. And hey, if you've been looking to either get into a saddle or maybe a mobile lock-on setup or just a different kind of tree stand setup, I'm telling you, it's worth the investment to go to this show because they're all going to be there and you, you will get to try all of them in person before you buy it. So you don't have to order something online and then wait for it and then try it when it comes in to see if you really like it, you're going to get to go put your hands on everything all in one day, test it all out and figure out exactly what works best for you and have it taken care of before deer season starts. So like I said, go ahead and put it on your calendar, guys. It's a no brainer. You got to be at the show. Again, it's Friday, June 28th through Sunday, June 30th in Dalton, Georgia. We absolutely cannot wait to meet you guys there and talk hunting. So we'll see you at the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo in Dalton, Georgia.